there were literally no tourists there. It was me and a bunch of yaks. <laughs> I thought that was a racial slur, that, but you mean <laughs> the, the <animal>. Literally, yeah. <laughs> you bloody yak. Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. I'll keep the intro short today. My guest is Greg Nance, who is an experienced ultramarathon athlete living in China. We start this chat in, well, in the way that you might expect. But after the first five minutes or so, the interview goes into an entirely different direction. And I don't want to reveal too much about that story. So here is our conversation. I am here in the studio with Greg Nance. Greg is an education entrepreneur and an ultramarathon runner. Oscar, thank you for having me. I think maybe the listener can already tell your positivity through just that one sentence. And I'm going to try and take the piss out of you each and every time you sound positive during this interview. It's going to be a lot, I know. I'm expecting it. Let's do it. <laughs> well, let's jump straight in then. Tell us, what object did you bring that in some way exemplifies what you're doing here in China? Yes, I brought a water bottle from the Seattle Seahawks, my local hometown football team. And this symbolizes, I think, my journey because I've been homesick really since the day I moved to Shanghai, actually, where um, I'm, I'm on a mission here. I'm doing some really fun stuff, which I'm excited to share. But at the same time, my heart is really back home in Seattle in a lot of senses. And I got the opportunity of a lifetime when my hometown, Seattle Seahawks, surprised me with a little fan documentary they made about me on Halloween 2016, where they flew in one of my favorite retired players, and they filmed me running 15 miles from my apartment onto the sports bar where I watched the game at two in the morning, uh, Monday morning. And that to me was just the adventure of a lifetime. And this water bottle is a gift from them that I drink from every day. We already know you're an ultramarathon athlete. So you carry it with you on your runs or you have it afterwards? I have it afterwards. It's at my desk. Okay. And is it just water or do you have some god awful mix of protein or something? I occasionally will do like, yeah, some protein powders and things. Although 95% of the time it's just water with some ice cubes. Yeah. Keep it simple. <laughs> well, in terms of your ultramarathon record, you probably can run it off pretty easily at this point. So what, what is your background? Yeah, so I, I started off with the 400 meter in high school. Uh, then I did a little bit of the 800. And what I realized, I got stronger as I went further. And I just really, really loved running, loved pushing myself, seeing what I was capable of. And so I just started going a little further, a little further. I did my first uh, ultra in December 2011. And since then, it's been the best excuse to go travel, see beautiful places. So my most recent big one was running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, starting in Antarctica, up to Cape Town, South Africa, Perth, Australia, Dubai, Madrid, Santiago, Chile, and then up to Miami, USA um, within that seven-day stretch. So that was maybe the hardest I've done just because I was felt sick as a dog and I was just super tired from the very beginning. The logistics of it is almost as impressive as running the damn uh -huh. thing, right? It, it is, and I can take no credit for any logistics. Wonderful team of organizers that picked the shortest distances, picked comparatively safe places where we could get there. And then you have to think about stuff like visas, airport transit time, uh, chances for flight delay. And I was just the guy jumping out of the jet running, getting back on the jet. They had great food and really took wonderful care of us as we went through. So. And how many of you were there that time? There were 40 that went for it. Um, up until our cohort, only 104 people had ever done that, actually. So 144 folks around the world um, are as crazy as I am. <laughs> what did you learn from that one experience? 
Yeah, it, it's it's a tough one because in every ultra marathon, the wheels come off. Like at some point, you're questioning whether I can finish this race, almost always. And there's sort of a, a shadow that comes across your mind of, what? why am I doing this? Why am I out here? This hurts too much. I could just throw in the towel right now. Usually that's 80 miles into a 100-mile race, or that's 175 kilometers into 250. In this case, I started asking myself that question 10 miles into the second race. I I had a stomach flu. I felt terrible. And really what I learned is you got to keep resetting your sights and remembering your why every single step because by mile 40 of this 183-mile adventure, I'm in pain, and I'm literally crying while a doctor is working on my quads because they're convulsing with every heartbeat. And I just never experienced that kind of pain before. In that moment, you can't think about that full marathon or the five and a half to go. Instead, you're thinking about how do I get back on my feet and take that first step? And for me, that's a metaphor about life sometimes. You get knocked down. All of us do. It's really how you approach that next step, just getting off your behind onto your feet. And do you then bring this across from one life to the other? I, I do bring it across. My my running, without a doubt, has made me a better leader, a better manager, I think better person. And I think my business work certainly makes me a better runner uh, in my ability to, to kind of size things up and strategize the right way, train the right way. Uh, a series of building blocks, day after day after day, you lay the foundation in business or leadership or management or ultra running for that matter too. And so that was, uh, what year was it? That was February 2019. Okay, so relatively recently. Recently, yep. So you're already in in Shanghai in China at that point? Yep, already in Shanghai. Actually, I trained for it by running shirtless for the Antarctic wind chill and then doing some sauna cardio for like the hot stuff that we'd face too. Right. Yeah. Here's my deal. And I think Mm. you you know this already. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) look at people like you and I think, well, you're showing off. You're this privileged white dude, and you've decided to take off around the world and see all these great places. And you can say, yeah, it was me, mind never matter, and great. And before I knew you, I would have looked at you and thought, well, there's no way I want to like that person. As Uh much as he wants to inspire people, that's going to be the opposite for me. So when you hear that, is it something where you just think, oh, Oscar, you are wrong. (laughs) And in fact, you are a terrible human being, which I am. No, I, I think there's there's a lot to that. I, I First of all, I acknowledge how blessed I am. Like a lot of folks don't have the means to do this. They don't have the ability to train for this stuff. So number one, I, I acknowledge that guilty as charged. There's an enormous amount of privilege that uh, enables you to even get to the start line. Um, at the same time, I would share with, with you and other kind of skeptics that really it's about following your smile. Uh, in my In my life experience, which is limited, but I'm slowly accumulating it, when you actually do the things that you love to do, something really amazing happens. You start to make real progress at that. You start to share that gift with your friends. And before you know it, you can become one of the best at whatever it is that you love to do. For me, it happens to be running long distances, but I think this framework applies literally to anything. It can be granny's knitting or memorizing Bible verses or becoming a great online marketer. Uh, Whatever it is that you love to do, spend time doing it, follow your smile, and I think magic starts to happen. You're happier, you're more fulfilled, I think you'll be more accomplished, and you'll attract people in your life that are really wind in those sails for you as you go forward. So what do you do then to talk to people like myself, at least I'm doing it just to antagonize you, of (laughs) course, but then the people who look at you and go, you know what, I I can't get inspiration from that because I just look at someone like you and I think, yeah, I can't ever attain that level in whatever I try and do, Mm. so I'm just going to ignore people like you and just stick with us average people. One of my core beliefs is that every one of us has just way more potential than we've ever tapped into. And sometimes it takes difficult circumstances in your life to like really uh, start to even pursue that path. 
I grew up in a really wonderful place, little Bainbridge Island off the coast of Seattle. It's the size of Manhattan, so it's, it's a large island, but only about 20,000 people when I was growing up. So idyllic, idyllic place to grow up. Um, by the same time, you deal with challenges. You deal with setbacks and obstacles. Uh, for me, kind of a defining one early in my life, um, at 16, the real role model uh, and super mentor in my life was my granddad, Grandpa Charlie. And he goes from being kind of like the strongest person that I'd ever met, just like so much like resilience and resolve. And the next day he suffers a debilitating stroke and he kind of fades away. And, you know, uh, this wave of sadness and anxiety and despair and, and then depression w washes over me. And, you know, at that age, I didn't have the, uh, the kind of maturity or the, the emotional capacity to really like work through that. And, and that, uh, that led me on a, um, down a kind of a dark path where I began medicating with malt liquor, like old English and high gravity malt liquor, which uh, for the, the uninformed is basically a double kind of potency beer. And the reason why you drink it, it's cheap and it's powerful. Um, first on like weekends with my friends and then even on school nights and then right after school. And before I knew it, I was in the parking lot drinking malt liquor before classes um, or at a lunch break, um, before tennis practice, um, before running. And I became reliant on that in order to feel uh, confident and happy. I relied on that to just kind of feel normal. Um, and it usually doesn't just stop with, you know, malt liquor. And it didn't for me. I started drinking uh, vodka with that malt liquor. And then that wasn't enough either. So I started smoking blunts and joints. Uh, and when that wasn't strong enough with the vodka mix, um, began doing uh, some like opiates as well, um, Percocet and Vicodin. Uh, that was a seven-year struggle, actually, age 16 to 23. Most of the days between 16 and 23, I was drunk or high or both um, in order to kind of self-medicate. And a lot of that pain uh, began with you know my grandpa Charlie's passing, and then it was just dealing with the stresses of university life or the challenges or anxiety of working on a startup um, or the difficulties of leadership. Every one of the situations just felt better if I was a little buzzed or a lot buzzed. Well, what you say is just the textbook way that people fall into this addiction where mm. it just becomes the routine. Mm. Wow, okay, I wasn't expecting that. And so is that the story now that you say or is it something which you largely keep to yourself? It, uh, yeah, it's tough, man. I've, I've been processing this um, in the last several months, particularly working with a mindset coach, a.k.a. a therapist. Shout out to my, my bud Jeff for being an awesome presence in my life and helping me work through this stuff. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was in denial during, number one, so... I knew I had a problem, but at the same time, I was lying to uh, even my closest friends, my family. You know, my parents had no idea. Um, uh, and I was basically able to sober up with the help of just spending all of my money on drugs and alcohol. So, like, I ran out of money, and you know, that, that made going cold turkey much easier when you're just completely out of money. Your debit card's being denied uh, as you go out. Um, by the same token, uh, in the year since, I have you know haven't drank for uh, a good stretch now. Uh, that said... Uh, I haven't been yet as forthcoming or open or honest about it because I haven't had really the chance to kind of reflect and process. Because uh, in a lot of ways, I've thought of myself as, oh, but like you're some successful guy. You're not some alcoholic or some addict. Um, and there seems to be like this like connotation and stigma. And what I've learned now uh, recently, in part from these conversations with my, uh, my therapist, is that addiction, it affects so many. It's 20 million Americans directly are, are addicted to alcohol or substance abuse. And if you think about all the sons, daughters, moms, dads, partners, bosses, cousins, uncles, 
uh, it's significant. Everybody is a degree removed from someone suffering from addiction. And what I've kind of come to terms with in my own journey is, look, I can be successful or I can be like on my path toward success as I define it and be someone working through an addiction to alcohol and substances. And both those things can be true. And in fact, me being uh, open about some of the challenges that I faced, I think, can help other people deal with their own challenges. And, and my aim really is to help people around like a kitchen table or with their partner or with their child or with their parent be able to have those conversations and move to a place of like love and support and understanding because this stuff is really, really tough. And when you're in the midst of it, you feel completely isolated. Um, even though like I have the most loving sister and brother and parents and, and just wonderful friends in my life, I felt so isolated I had to deceive each of them. And when my sister said, hey, like, you know, it looked like you really, like, drank a lot last night and you're drinking a lot right now. That's from a place of pure love. But at the same time, I, what I heard in her voice was, oh, she's accusing me of something. Like, let me just, like, pull back and deny everything. And, you know, I you know, I work hard and I play hard, whatever. You know, get rid of, like, the, the silliness there and acknowledge um, the challenge that you are facing and get the love, support, and help that you need to feel reconnected, reintegrated, and to find your path as you go forward. Well, you must have been very high functioning for them to have not known. Yeah, I, I was, and that was a big challenge. I, uh, you know, I could play very good tennis with several drinks down the hatch. I could go to debate tournaments high as a kite, which I did. I could, um, I think I sat for the the ACT uh, intoxicated. Uh, did did fine at it. I led student. You know, I was student government president at University of Chicago. I led meetings intoxicated. I uh, was one of the leaders of the investment club during college. I did that drunken high all the time. Um, so yeah, I, I was high functioning and that that was the, the kind of the curse about it because if I had been low functioning, well, the warning signs would have been obvious to everybody, but you know, I got good grades. I got good test scores. I was a multi-sport athlete. I, you know, had a lot of friends that were like really good people. And so my, my parents, you know, how would they have known or my brother and sister just think, oh, like Greg likes to party, uh, which it was true. Like I it thoroughly enjoyed all of that until it began kind of overwhelming you. And then it's like this kind of haunting grip that you feel where like, you know, there's something grabbing you, gripping you there. And yet you feel kind of powerless too. You know, I tried quitting a hundred times and I just couldn't do it because every single time I made the vow, usually on like a Saturday morning when my head was pounding and I was thinking about something really, really dumb I did, or I feel like my jaws hurt because I like got in a fight last night, or I woke up with a $900 ER bill in my pocket, had no recollection of any of that. And it's just like, I am so obviously over the line here and over the edge and yet um, I would commit to that full with full sincerity 8 a.m. 9 a.m. Saturday morning and then at 6 p.m. I'm taking my first Vicodin or I'm you know doing my first shots and saying that out loud now like it makes no sense like how did that happen like how did you let yourself get into that and yet it's it's a real thing and I I lived it. Well the worst thing about all this is now I can't be mean to you about your optimism. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for sharing that. I guess the idiot question to ask next would be, so is this why then you are now addicted to running? You use this as your therapy in some way, or is that just too simple? No, there's there's truth in it. Uh, I'll I'll let you under kind of the uh, the curtain here to say that the day my debit card got refused in uh, Cambridge, England, it was a day of just immense shame for me. Uh, Bill Gates gave me a scholarship to go to Cambridge for grad school. one of the proudest, you know, seeing the look on like my parents' face was like just such a wonderful feeling. Getting like my friends giving me kudos, um, just so special. Like I've achieved all these like wonderful goals. Age twenty three, I go off to business school there, 
And within two months, I've partied through the very generous stipend I was given for graduate school. I'm now absolutely dead broke. I'm going to try to buy another fifth of vodka. Uh, it's probably my like fourth or fifth that week. And the uh, the attendant there who is kind of eyeballing me like, wow, this you know, I've been seeing more and more of your face the last couple of weeks. He uh, lets me know, hey, like, sorry, your card's been declined. And that moment, I walk back to uh, my little dormitory, and I'm so like frustrated and angry and pissed and confused. I've got rent due in a week. I need to fly home for Christmas. Uh, like all these big expenses coming up. Like, what am I gonna do? The only thing I can think to do, like, I want to like punch a wall, but I don't actually don't want to do that. I instead lace up my running shoes and I just kind of sprint out into the hills outside Cambridge. Just run and run and run and run. And it turns into probably a 15, 20 mile run where I'm just like running myself ragged. And at the end of it, my legs and lungs are just like totally shot, totally dead. And yet I felt in that moment, like I turned like some small corner, Uh, like that feeling had replaced some of like the withdrawals I was feeling. Some like the, again, like the simmering anger and frustration and, uh, and kind of embarrassment and shame that I was, you know, was welling up inside me. And from that moment, I've realized that the days where I'm running, I've got a smile. The days where I'm running, I feel a little bit more kind of in control, a little bit more present, a little more relaxed because I still deal with stress and I have a lot of anxiety. And, you know, I've put myself in positions with my my work where it's not a low stress occupation to like CEO a company, but particularly in China, like there's every day there's stuff that comes up. And, you know, I've, I've had people joke with me like, yo, you need to like go spend a year or two on a beach, like just recoup. And that's also not my speed. That's not my style. And so it's tough. It's like, you got to find ways to kind of take care of yourself and to recharge your batteries. And for me, running is that it is therapeutic. It's been a wonderful way to connect with a lot of folks that have dealt with similar issues in their past. And I found many folks in the ultra community, uh, a lot of them are running from something or running towards something. And I think uh, at first I was like, oh, that's not quite me. Like I just, I run because I like running and I, I run because I get to see the world. And those things are you know partially true, but I think the, the fuller story is I'm also running to remake myself as a stronger, more resilient person. And I'm running as a way to channel a lot of those kind of negative emotions and feelings into something that uh, is a little more positive. And my favorite part about all this is actually sharing. I love getting in front of like school children, like going to an elementary middle school and talking about following your smile. Running's worked for me and I share what's worked about that. And I started learning about other folks, folks' journeys too, um, ranging from like doing the crossword each morning or meditating or stretching um, or swimming. And a, a lot of that is like putting your brain or your your body to use in new ways so that you can still channel a lot of, again, those feelings and emotions that are, are challenging to work through. And so that's the connection you have with your business now, right? Because you do work in education. So that's what gets you in front of kids. Like, what is your business? Yeah, we're called dyad.com. And for those that have studied a little bit of ancient uh, Greek or Latin, that uh, dyad means consisting of two parts, which uh, for us is the present self, where you are today, and then your potential self, what you can become. And we are a mentorship platform that helps people reach their dyad to merge their uh, present self with their potential self. We connect Chinese students primarily, although actually we operate globally, it's an online platform, with experts from their target universities to help them earn scholarships. And the, uh, the thing I'm proudest of after serving 2,100 clients over the last seven years is that we've helped folks earn over $27 million in scholarships. Yeah, you're making it even harder for me to hate you now, you see. <laughs> okay, let me ask you. So you said that there were stresses in this business. I'm sure there are. Yep. 
And there would have been times that would have made you in other times of your life go straight to the drink, yep. go straight to medication. Yep. So talk me through one of the hardest times that you had in the business and then tell me how you got out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the single hardest was uh, um, I actually I started the company with a, um, a close friend. We had gone to business school together and um, brilliant, brilliant uh, individual who just like so creative, so hardworking, uh, really put heart and soul into the business. And we had really uh, well overlapping strengths. So like where I may be a strong like marketer, uh, he's a really, really strong like, operator, for instance. And where I like the technology side, he's really good, like the sales side, for instance. And so uh, we had like the ingredients actually have a really good partnership to do some really cool things. Um, unfortunately, yeah, business is really stressful. I would deal with that stress by like going for a run and like thinking through things, working through stuff. Whereas I think he, yeah, he felt um, increasingly kind of isolated and just overwhelmed by a lot of the stressors and didn't have an outlet for that and just would work and work and work. And that led to um, a variety of kind of differences of opinion and, uh, uh, you know, differences of opinion, which I think actually are very healthy in a business. Uh, well, that led to, you know, increasing gaps and then sort of chasms. And it, it led to um, just really, really kind of series of difficult conversations that, uh, that manifested in a, a psychotic episode where this individual was unable to uh, restrain himself from assaulting, you know, one of our colleagues. Um, I end up getting in the middle of it, uh, catch some some teeth to the shin. Uh, I'm, you know, literally bit in our office. Um, he's ordered to get 24 hours of anger management counseling. I'm ordered to get a tetanus shot. Hmm. Uh, the the fallout from that with you know this brilliant friend of yours who's just suffering from really, really some dark stuff. And again, you'd like to help. You'd like to be there. And at the same time, you're so angry and frustrated about what this is doing to this business that you've been working you know, your tail off for for years. Uh, it was really, really tough. And you, you're losing this friendship and you feel like you're going to lose this business altogether. Um, and that wasn't even the end of it. He ends up coming back with a, um, a police officer trying to get the deed snatched. You know, I want the chop back and you stole this company from me. And just a, over a year of kind of just drip, drip, drip drama. Um, just as soon as you think you've uh, put that out, you know, it's uh, uh, he, he's back. And this time he's hacking the website. Um, our homepage got hacked uh, by this gentleman. And it, the homepage, instead of reading, you know, diet.com, it's, Stop fooling people around you, Greg, or you will be punished. Um, size 100 red font on our homepage. And I am wake up the next morning, five in the morning, going out for my run. And I, I'm, my WeChat is blowing up with clients saying, oh, my gosh, what's happened? Um, and it's just like, what? Like, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And, you know, our product managers give me a call just, like, freaking out. We're trying to figure out how this breach even happened. Uh, what keys this gentleman still has. And so that was a very, very rough year, you know, 2014, 2015. It's hard enough trying to grow a business under the best of circumstances, but particularly if you've got a, uh, a fox in the hen house, you know, loose there, or you've got a, you know, someone in the cockpit who's grabbing at the controls trying to take the plane down. Uh, yeah, that was enormously challenging. And, and it was tough because that was an individual who I had, you know, just an enormous amount of trust in going into this and a uh, quarter million dollars disappears. I'm sorry, what? Uh, yeah, uh, there's also a major theft of a quarter million dollars in the midst of all this. So yeah, that that was enormously challenging on all kind of all fronts, and uh, I think that really proved to me, hey, if I can stay sober through this series of episodes, then uh, I'm ready. Like I'm ready to face the challenges of life because I think this is going to be a particularly you know acute one that uh, really dogged me for quite a while. 
Wow. Well, so. that's not the, not the answer I was expecting as well. So, gosh, and I can really relate because I'm the co-founder of my own company as well. And I founded it with a very close friend of mine. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we were respectful uh, all the way through. We had our differences. Mm. Um, and it's very easy to focus on those. But mm. then when I hear a story like yours, you know, it does make me think, wow, for all the differences that we had, like, mm. uh, I think both of us were lucky to have found each other. Mm. What about with you? Like, did it wash out okay in the end, or are you estranged? Like, what's what's he doing? Good question. I, I'm not quite sure what he's up to. Um, so yeah, we're not we're no longer in touch. Um, yeah, given kind of the nature of the falling out, I thought, hey, like some time and distance is what the uh, what the doctor ordered here. Well, I'm looking at your object here, the Seattle water bottle. It makes me just think to wrap up this part of the conversation. What about your home, your family? Like, how have they dealt with first hearing about mm-hmm. your issues? And then where you are today, like, uh, what's your relationship like with them now? They've been very, very supportive. Um, they you know, understand what it takes, you know, a lot of hard work, a lot of determination, dedication to get this going and to keep it going. They've been out to visit, been out to kind of see kind of my day-to-day-to-day out here in Shanghai. And as I mentioned at the outset, I'm I'm still really homesick, and I'm, I'm eager for uh, even more time back home because I uh, there's a lot of special moments that you miss out when you're 7,000 miles away. Well, thanks very much. Um, you've opened up a lot. And, you know, there's parts of that story that I um, didn't know as well. Um, I really, uh, you know, no, you don't need to hear this from me, but I encourage you to really own this story more and more because thanks. I think that's what people need to hear, especially in China, where I feel that the stigma of drug addiction is really strong. Mm. And I don't even think that they're open to hearing about how people get through that. They just see it as an evil. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, so uh, my, my big plan on this is I'm going to celebrate 3,000 days of sobriety. And actually to mark that, I plan to be in New York City that day to put one foot in the Atlantic Ocean and then to begin running across the United States. Um, and my aim is to finish uh, in my hometown of Seattle with a foot in the Pacific Ocean some 75 days later. Um, and as part of this, I'd like to uh, tell stories of sobriety and tell stories of addiction, how folks have overcome addiction. Uh, to, to demonstrate that overcoming addiction is a marathon, not a sprint. My hope would be that some of those efforts are able to inspire and spark authentic Chinese stories as well because th- these issues are real and it takes a series of dialogues to begin cracking at that stigma. And it won't happen with one guy running. It's going to be a series of milestones. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's move on to part two. Part two. Question one, what is your favorite China-related fact? My favorite China-related fact is that the Huangpu River, the river that flows through Shanghai here, uh, was actually excavated and dredged to be created around 2,500 years ago during the Warring States period. It it starts around Songzhong, which is like far southwest Shanghai. It's a district. uh, And it winds its way merrily over the Bund, Ujatswe, onto uh, the Yangtze River, which drains into the East China Sea. Okay. Number two, do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Yi shan burong arhu, which is... uh, one mountain cannot have two tigers. And for me, that's a great parable about leadership. Ultimately, uh, you need accountability and you need people responsible, just like that one tiger on that one mountain. Okay. Is that something about having two co-founders? It might be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Number three, what is your favorite destination within China? 
I've got two. Um, so I loved the Gobi Desert in Xinjiang with the Tian Shan Mountains. Just absolutely amazing. Totally recommend that. My second is a Haba Shui Shan, Haba Snow Mountain. Totally beautiful. It's a little over 5,000 meters tall, and you actually have a beautiful view into Tiger Leaping Gorge. And when I went, there were literally no tourists there. It was me and a bunch of yaks. <laughs> I thought that was a racial slur, that, but you mean <laughs> the animal? Literally, yeah. <laughs> you bloody yak. Oh, oh, it's a, it's a yak. <laughs> That's right. Before, if you left China, what would be the thing that you missed the most and the thing that you missed the least? The thing I'd miss the most is the energy and dynamism of China. You can't really replicate that. Uh, it's, it's really, really magical here. Um, I love that. The thing I would miss the least is near-death experiences with like Olama drivers and scooters flying down sidewalks. Uh, that still terrifies me to this day. Yes. I have been hit by one of those. I got clipped on an ankle a couple years ago, and it still stings me to think about it. I have the scars to prove it too. So let's just, uh, after this, we can, we can compare them. <laughs> is there anything that still surprises you about life in China? I feel like I've, I've, I've seen a good deal after near seven years here. Um, one thing that I think will probably always shock me um, and surprise me is seeing the sort of opulent luxury and wealth and privilege in such close proximity to kind of the, uh, the poverty and squalor. Um, that is just really tough to see. You know, I come out of a business meeting in a really nice office building or at a really nice dinner, and you've got a shanty right next door. And that happens all over the world. But it's, it's profoundly visible here in Shanghai. Where is your favorite place to go out or to hang out? One of my favorite things to do is just go on long runs where I just unplug, I'm thinking, and I run and run and run and run until I'm so hungry where it doesn't feel like I can keep going. And I will just jump into the random hole-in-the-wall dumpling or noodle or rice place right there. Uh, and more often than not, just like a really wonderful granny or grandpa is cooking up something delicious. Uh, we'll have a special moment there. I'll usually get a selfie in with them. And then I'll, I'll have the fuel and the carbs to then run back to it, to Jing'an, where I'm based. Um, that's kind of my favorite, actually, of, of everything. And I feel like I've seen um, a couple hundred wonderful hole-in-the-walls at this point. For listeners that may be looking for a recommendation in Shanghai, um, I love The Press, maybe my favorite coffee shop. It's uh, down in the Huangpu district. It, uh, it's the site of uh, one of the old newspaper presses. And so it's beautiful, like kind of Greco-Roman-style architecture, um, and it's relatively affordable, you know, Americanos and coffee there. It's just a really beautiful place to like, go do some work, set some goals. And then my favorite kind of hangout, I'm not a big night owl anymore. I go to bed relatively early. I'm, I'm pretty boring. But uh, I do like uh, Cochi's, which is like a grilled cheese spot um, real close to uh, China Accelerator, which is where I'm based. And so, yeah, that, that's a very tasty spot if you're ever craving some, some grilled cheese. What is the best or worst purchase you have made in China? The, uh, let me go to the worst because this is more, uh, more to the top of mind. My first trip to China was Beijing in 2009, and I uh, got a wonderful Mao watch. And it's like, you know, Chairman Mao with his two hands, his two arms is like the seconds-a-minute clock. And I, I haggled it down to something like 20 RMB, which I felt like was a pretty good deal because it started out like 200. Um, and by the time I had gotten on the airplane to fly home some eight hours later, the watch had stopped working. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like total swindling here. My, my sister still loved the gift. So it, it, it may not have actually been the worst, but that, that comes to mind for sure. That still eats away at you. It does. <laughs> Deep in my soul. What is your favorite WeChat sticker? 
Yes, my two favorite WeChat stickers. One is Derek Zoolander, um, and he's dancing with his friends in his open-air Jeep. And that's from one of my favorite movies, Zoolander. Uh, and the second is uh, the rapper Drake. He's got a, a song called Hotline Bling where he does this kind of fun dance. And uh, there's a sticker where he's actually playing Fruit Ninja, which is fantastic. So <laughs> iconic video. It's a silly one. So, <laughs> Thank you. That's going on social media afterwards. Um, what is your go-to song to sing at KTV? Ooh, uh, Led Zeppelin's When the Levy Breaks. Uh, it's a beautiful song, and it's fun to introduce because none of my Chinese friends have, have heard that before. And so when available, it's not always, but that's why I like. Um, what's always available, but I've been talked into a number of times, and I've sort of had to claim it as a result, is uh, a lady named Natalie Imbruglia sung Torn, which is like a 1998 super pop hit or something. And uh, colleagues make me sing that one when we go out because I'm, I'm, I do give a pretty good rendition. Thank you, Natalie. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, of course I know that because I'm a Brit and we were fed a diet of Australian soaps and she's an Australian soap star. Oh, there we go. Okay. Which most Americans don't realize when Did they... Did not. No. Wow. Yes. Do you know what impresses me the most out of the whole conversation now is that actually you can go to karaoke and you're completely sober. <laughs> That's right. I've, yeah, got a seven-year streak on. So. Oh. And finally, what other China-related media or sources of information in general do you rely on? Yeah, so my favorite is a group called China Hive, and they do really good kind of technology and innovation. So if you're at all interested in, like, what's the startup scene like or where is China tech going or Western tech in China, these guys at China Hive um, do a really, really good job covering it. Very nice. Thank you so much. Well, altogether, you know, that's been a, a very eye-opening conversation with you, Greg. Um, I really appreciate that. And I think people who listen to this are also going to be surprised too, especially ones who we know together from IPWS. Absolutely. International Professional Women's Society, wonderful conference, wonderful programming, and some good uh, B-list speakers like myself and A-listers like Oscar. So. <laughs> you said the right thing. I will definitely not edit that out from the final <laughs> version. <laughs> and finally, what I ask everyone before they leave is mm. out of everyone you know in China, for the next series of Mosaic of China, who would you recommend that I interview next? Uh, I recommend my friend, who I think is one of the most interesting people in all of China, a fellow named Alex Shore. And Alex is the founder and CEO of a company called Cedar, which is helping factories and manufacturers in China use like green energy and solar power for their fueling needs. He's wonderful, very insightful, and I think would be just a great resource for uh, Mosaic of China listeners. Done. Well, I look forward to meeting Alex and thank you again, Greg. 100%. Oscar, my pleasure. So I hope you can understand why this episode is a little longer than usual. The 25-minute format of Mosaic of China can cope with one twist in a story, but everything starts to derail when there are two. So I'll hurry up with this and just say please check out the accompanying images to this episode with Greg. You can find them at Mosaic of China on Instagram and Facebook or join the conversation on WeChat by adding me on my ID, Oscar10877, and I'll add you to the group myself. There's his object, his favorite stickers, some race photos, even a couple of shots of Greg from his partying days, and a whole bunch more. And also, Greg's comment about trying to avoid getting knocked over by scooters on the pavements of China is a great excuse for me to remind you about last week's episode, in which Roz talked about the concept of Shanghai Flow. If only Greg and I had listened to Roz, neither of us would be comparing scars today. 
Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs. Artwork by Denny Newell and extra support from Milo De Prieto and Alston Gong. And a quick coronavirus update. It's now the end of February and more shops and restaurants are starting to reopen this week, at least here in Shanghai. I ventured out this weekend and in a lot of places people are being seated with at least one table separating each party. And where there are lines, I saw patrons being asked to space themselves out. So a few interesting measures there that at least I saw, allowing for these small signs of life returning back to normal. I hope to have more progress to report when we're back next week.